0: Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain, and today we have an interview with technical advisor and ex-New York City police officer Randy Jurgensen. Mr. Jurgensen has been a technical advisor on the French Connection, Cruising, and Report to the Commissioner. On March 8, 2014, we will be showing Report to the Commissioner at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street at 2 p.m. More on this later. On to the interview.
1: You've had quite a career and, and life. Could you just give a brief biography of yourself?
2: I was born and raised in New York City. I, along with a, a, a lot of a lot of other fellows, I, I, I fudged my age and uh, went into the uh, the service at uh, sixteen. I wound up being stationed in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. I was a, a paratrooper with the 11th Airborne. I shipped overseas uh, with the 187th Airborne Angels during the Korean War. Upon uh, coming home, I took the test to become a New York City police officer where I served for 20 years, and I retired as a first-grade homicide detective out of the city of New York. I was during what we call... The bad old days in New York City, where there were uh, 2,000 homicides a year. I retired in 1979. And during this time, in 1971, one of the narcotic cases that I was not the lead detective on, but I worked on, it was called the Patsy Fuker case. That case. We got $990,000, the FBI weighed money, and we confiscated enough heroin to supply the city of New York for months on end. The case evolved into, or revolved, if you will, into what was called the French Connection. A book was written about it by Robin Moore, and it was called The French Connection. The the book was purchased by 20th Century Fox, and they made a motion picture of the same name, starring Gene Hackman and Roy uh, Scheider. Now, this was in 1971, while I was still very active in the police department. I got a call from the director and the producer of this picture, And I was hired as a consultant or technical advisor. From that point, I met the actors and the actresses within the movie. I found the making of the movie to be terribly, terribly interesting and challenging in that, if I may, as a homicide detective, when I arrived on the scene, I was responsible for obviously the victim, but I was responsible for all kinds of notifications to get the fingerprint people to come, to get the ballistics people to come, to conduct a search, the medical examiner. I could go on with this. I, as the detective, was solely responsible for this. I saw, in the making of the French Connection movie, I saw the producer... I saw the producer who who was totally responsible for actually approving the actors' contracts, uh, calling and setting up the wardrobe people, calling actually the people that brought the lunch. All kinds of departments all went through the producer. So I saw early on that, you know, producing a movie. And I never did one on a very large scale. But producing a movie, actually, if you'll go with me, it was almost like solving a homicide case. The producer was totally responsible for everything and anything, the same as the detective. The end result, sir, would be that I would be in court and I would have to convince 12 jurors and, of course, there was an audience of people sitting out uh, you know sitting out in the courtroom, and of course, if I got a conviction, you know that was what we were aiming for. Well, in producing a movie, you know after you have the movie made, it's in the can and it's coming out. If the movie is any type of you know a success, that is like a job well done on many, many levels so I I hope that you can see the analogy that I've drawn between being a homicide detective and being a producer in the industry. I did not immediately, upon working the French Connection, become a producer. No. I worked on many, many movies and television movies before taking the test for the Directors Guild of America, of which I passed, and I became an assistant director. And from there, I moved over to being a production manager. And from a production manager, I went into associate producing, co-producing, and finally producing my own movies.
1: Anyway, you mentioned The French Connection. And they had the actual auto mechanic, Irving Abrams, who stripped the dirty automobile in the French Connection case. And yeah. you were playing the police sergeant who kept the Frenchman busy. Did, did you actually keep the Frenchman busy in the real case, or were you just playing the part?
2: I was just playing the part, sir, but that, that Irving was the real mechanic who really found the drugs, and he played the part in the, in the movie. He was the real person.
1: You said you worked the actual case, and what? Just what was your involvement in it?
2: My in- involvement for months was what we call tailing, s- surveillance, if you will, day and night. You know, they used various departments in various hotels, and uh, basically, I was really on a uh, stakeout when they went to Brooklyn and actually seized the drugs. I was tailing. You know, a couple of the suspects who would later be arrested in Manhattan. That lasted for a little over six months on that case. The main two detectives that set that case up and broke that case is Sonny Grasso and Eddie Egan. Eddie Egan has since passed on. Uh, Sonny Grasso and I went on to work for 10 years together as partners.
1: On the movie, The 7-Ups, you were the assistant production manager, and this story was written by your ex-partner, Sonny Grosso, and was there a group of policemen called The 7-Ups?
2: Yes, we were. That came from an undercover narcotic unit of which I was a part of, and it comes from that after making the arrest, they generally, because we didn't make like, Low level street collars or street arrests, if you will. We made, you know, rather than quantity, we made quality. And those people uh, received a sentence of seven years and up, hence the seven ups.
1: We're showing the movie, Report to the Commissioner, and you were a technical advisor on the movie. Could you discuss what a technical advisor does and what were your responsibility on that movie?
2: Okay. Now, a technical advisor in a police movie such as that has to be very, very careful in this respect. The director is the captain of that ship. He is the captain of that movie. And we find, as technical advisors... We actually hang out with the actors, give them mannerisms, give them police jargon. Absolutely, we, we turn them into police officers. And actors, I have found, are sponges. They absorb everything. And in a few cases, when they would be acting on the scene when it was over, the actors would look to the technical advisor to see that it was right. And, oh boy, you certainly can get into trouble with the director over that. So that was a very fine line that we walked. Now, on that picture, absolutely. I basically wrote the dialogue for the chief. I, I, I basically wrote the dialogue for the the man that would be, I believe it was Hector Alessandro, who would be reporting to the chief. And obviously, you know, in report to the commissioner, there were detectives there. I really worked with the female whose name escapes me right now.
1: Susan Blakely?
2: Uh, Susan Blakely. I, I I, actually took Susan Blakely with me on some low-level narcotic arrests I mean she was off in the distance and she she saw how uh, you know how it was done however I I, I kept saying to Susan uh, remember you're a female this is the way you know a male does it so forth and so on it was like everybody on the set it was like taking them to police school if you will you know how to talk detectives and that we have a certain swagger uh, you know I, yes that exactly what it is, and we're well paid, and we're also they've gotten away from technical advisor, and they now give us the title of consultant.
1: How accurate was report to the commissioner to New York and police work during that era in the early nineteen seventies?
2: Right on the money. Right on the money. I have found, especially through the seventies. You name the director that's doing a movie. It's about police, and it's about in New York. I mean, right down to the car, right down to the decals on the car, right down to the phones, the guns, the dress. They want it exactly as it is. Now, we didn't have to dress up anything in New York City in the 70s. The graffiti was there. You know, the drugs were there. The, you know, the streets, the way that they looked, they were there. We didn't have to dress anything. And I'll, I'll tell you what a big part that is, Bill. I did a movie for television, and it was called In the Shadow of a Killer. It was about an individual who killed a cop in 1968. And I went to do this movie In 1980, and there was a lot of difficulty with the unions in New York, so we had to go to Chicago. So I had to turn, I had to turn Chicago, 1980, into New York City, 1968. And that was a big to-do. It really was a big to-do. So making the movies in 1970s, In New York City, how accurate was it? It was right on the money. We didn't have to make up anything, if you will, Bill.
1: You were a part of an iconic scene in movie history. You were one of the gangsters in The Godfather that killed Sonny Corleone. And What do you recall about filming that scene?
2: I was working on The Godfather prior to doing that. I was doing security work, uh, with the actors. You know, they never walked alone. They never left the set alone. I supplied, I supplied the people for that. I took care of Al Pacino myself because that was his request. So I got to know the actors pretty good. And one of the actors that I really got to know pretty good was James Caan. James Caan had a habit of Getting into trouble. <laughs> getting into trouble offset. So I really got to know Jimmy Kahn. So Francis Coppola, he came, he came specifically to me one day and he said, Look, uh, I want to use in this scene, I want to use cops and detectives uh, for the one and simple reason they know how to use these weapons. They know how to conduct themselves. We're not going to have to teach them anything on how to use these weapons. And, of course, it's going to be the execution scene. And can you get me those uh, detectives? And I said, absolutely. And I did exactly that. Now, we had, look, there's trouble in filming every scene. But there was an exceptional trouble in filming this scene. We did this out at the Nassau Community College Center. The temperatures on those particular days, honestly, were reaching one hundred degrees with the humidity. And standing inside of those, you know, uh, in, in, in those toll boots, it was really telling. The machine guns didn't all go off at the same time, so the, the candy glass did not blow out all at the same time, and Coppola wanted that. So we did it take after take after take uh, to do that. And finally, Coppola came and he said, look, if the machine gun doesn't go off, honest to God, say out loud, rat tat ta 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 and poke the machine gun through the glass. Poke it through the glass. Well, I never had a problem with my machine gun, so I was placed to the front, where I was going to be anyway. I was placed to the front, and a separate camera was on me as versus the cameras that were taking from every angle these machine gun shootings, if you will. So when it was time to do it, we did it, and then I stepped out, and again, I let another burst go. That's what he told me to do. And then I'm the one that walks over to Jimmy Kahn, and I kick him on the ground. Now, at the conclusion of our doing the shooting, Jimmy Kahn was not ready. Jimmy Kahn had what they call and I believe the bulk of those squids were condoms, and it was condoms that were filled with special, it wasn't ketchup, it wasn't tomato soup, it was a special chemical that they concocted, because tomato soup and all the rest of it, it did not film what Coppola was looking for. In fact, it filmed black. So they put this special chemical in, these, in the condoms, and they placed them on Jimmy Kahn. He had wires that didn't film. He must have had 30 to 35 wires. And these wires were set against a box. And when this man pressed the switch on the box... The switches went, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. They, all, they didn't all hit at the same time, and that's the way it filmed. And it worked its way from the bottom up to Jimmy Kahn on the top. Then he was placed on the ground. And when he was placed on the ground is then is when, and this was probably the next day if I recall it, because it took all day to do Jimmy Kahn, and they only did it once. And, and then I went over, and then I nudged or kicked Jimmy Kahn. And we've had a, a running standing joke about that ever since. I have become known, I really have become known as the man who shot Sonny Corleone. Francis Coppola told me at the end of the shooting, he said, you're going to be one of the hated persons in America with the females and I asked why and he said Randy you just shot and killed Sonny Corleone (laughs) you know he was handsome good looking boy he had an entourage of women always around him so forth and so on so I got what 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 Coppola meant now Bill there is a technicolor version or in color rather version of the poster and it's becoming terribly, terribly popular. It now looks like placemats. I will send one to you if, if you want. And up in the corner, there I am with the machine gun coming out of the tollbooth. And that is now how the Godfather has been re-released and whatever you want to call it. With this, this now has taken the place of the black and white poster. That was around for years.
1: All right, you worked on the exploitation movies *Maniac* and *Vigilantes*, both directed by William Lustig. And he once said in an interview that he got his start on *The Seven Upset*. Do you remember meeting him on *The Seven Upset*?
2: I do, and I would like to correct Bill Lustig. Bill Lustig got his start on *The French Connection*, and he went through that chase. Frame by frame by frame. And that's where I met Bill Lustig. I guess that's semantics. Now on Maniac, on Maniac, and uh, the, the pictures that I I did with uh, Bill Lustig, those were my first producing titles. Now, these were this was called guerrilla filmmaking, and what we meant by guerrilla filmmaking was so low a budget. I mean that. Screen Actors Guild couldn't give us a budget for that. They, they, they could not do it. These pictures were made for a dollar and a dime. Non-union. And we, we went to locations where we didn't have a permit and we stole the shots. Hence, guerrilla filmmaking. An, an awful lot really went on. We actually, with respect, went into a cemetery and we filmed the closing scene. uh, You know, in the cemetery, I can't tell you the things that we did on those pictures that, you know, no Screen Actors Guild, no union picture would ever approve things being done the way that we uh, we did it. I mean, the menu was uh, sandwiches that Bill Lustig's mother made. You know, ham and cheese, we did not have a caterer where the menu had to be approved by Screen Actors Guild. Every corner that could be cut was cut, and that's where I cut my teeth on producing.
1: I watched your movie um, Heart, and you wrote the screenplay. And um, I did. Could you talk about your inspiration behind the script?
2: Back in the day, uh, for three years, I boxed in what they called the Golden Gloves and i box as an unattached fighter and i saw that world from from its beginning because many of those fighters went on to be light heavyweight champ i remember that and so i knew that world pretty good and then i saw a picture with robert ryan and the picture was called the setup and virtually it is about a fighter who's terribly betrayed I also, I also saw the picture with John Garfield called Body and Soul. So if I was to draw any kind of inspiration to make that, make that movie, it comes from that. It comes from personal experience at a very young age, and I was not very good. Uh, it comes from personal experience, and it comes from seeing movies like Body and Soul and The Setup. I also remember seeing uh, Kirk Douglas in Champion. So those were my inspirations to do that movie. You know, I was very, very lucky in that at that particular time, I got Brad Davis. And Brad Davis was coming off Midnight Express, Bill. And, uh, you know, Brad Davis had a name for himself. And I met Brad Davis because in the movie... Cruising, his brother played a very pivotal part, so I met Brad Davis while doing Cruising because his brother was in the movie, and was extremely lucky in listening to James Lemo, the director. We had both agreed that we would not make the bad people in this movie Italians, We had seen Italians time and time again. So we went for what we called a mid-European or maybe a mid-Eastern look to get these bad, bad guys. And so James Lemo said to me, Randy, I just saw an actor in a movie called Parting Glances. His name is Steve Buscemi. Let's get him. And I said, if that's who you want, if we can afford him, that's who we're going to get. And so we got Steve Buscemi. We also got a really an unknown actress called Frances Fisher, who would grow up to be Clint Eastwood's wife, have children with him, and a nice, nice character actor in her own part. So a lot of that was not skill. A lot of that was luck. So today, I just played about three months ago at a film festival uh, down in, for Robert De Niro's uh, company down, uh, down on Canal Street. I, I can't think of the name of it. Uh, uh, Tribeca? Tribeca. I played in Tribeca. I played there, and we played hard. And probably because of Steve Buscemi, it was the, forgive the English, the most attended and talked about uh, film. And here it is, I think, 25 years later, I'm showing that film.
1: You mentioned briefly uh, cruising. And just while you were a police officer, you worked the bad case, which later became the basis for the movie Cruising. How close to reality was the movie to your own experiences?
2: It was very, very close. It was, it, it was extremely close. In the early 60s. I was pulled out from narcotics and I was sent into that world because the homosexual people, males, were actually several of them. Several of them had been killed. A couple were decapitated. Body parts were being found down and around the what today is the meatpacking district in garbage cans. They found some floating out in the Hudson River. These bodies were called CUPPIES, and that stands for Circumstances Undetermined Pending a Police Investigation, because we didn't know the cause of death. And a lot of people, when I said that to them, they said, well, you found the head, yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't stabbed to death, and that the head was removed, you know, after, so we couldn't go into court without a cause of death, so they became known as cuppies. Well, I was sent into that world, and I lived in that world for eight months. Obviously changed my name, got an apartment, gave me money for a wardrobe, and I sailed into that life. It was not unlike living uh, out on the street, uh, you know, day after day, buying, buying heroin, cheap heroin in the street. I, I was in that life. Uh, so... This uh, I, I went into. I frequented the clubs. I I mastered the lingo. I saw what the dress was, and I put myself out there. And uh, as luck would have it, you know, seven months, seven months almost to the day, I got them. They were called the Salt and Pepper Team. It was a black male and a white male, and I got them. And what we got them for was extortion kidnapping they too got seven years we never got them for the homicides we could not prove that case in fact we didn't even get an indictment and that is the first that's the first step however in 1980 in 1980 well after i was gone even from the police department they got, they got a guy, and his name was uh, Advil Varel, and he admitted, he admitted to uh, four of those killings. What his reasons were, I have no idea. But it took all those years later, and, and they did solve it. So I was working with Billy Freakin, and Billy Freakin was aware of the book called Cruising. Uh, he optioned that book for the title only, and asked me never to read that book, and we sat down, and I gave him my exploits, if you will, over a considerable amount of time, and it was written out in longhand, and then it went into the uh, screenplay, and of course, Billy making the movie, he made one man the killer, Al Pacino was chasing the killer, but overall, the reconstruction, if you will, of the sites of where I took Billy to, all of those where they would have Nazi nights and dress and swatch stickers and so forth and so on, all up into Central Park, into the brambles, into the bushes, into the trucks. Now, that world that I lived in, and I want to make this clear, was not the homosexual or the gay person that was working down on Wall Street. That was working in the insurance company. No. This was the leather. This was the leather, the leather scene, if you will. It was an entirely different set. However, they preyed upon the individual that worked on Wall Street or was an insurance broker or who went to work every day with a shirt and tie. And Billy portrayed just the leather part of that world. Uh, In making that picture, it was extremely difficult. Al Pacino was a trooper. We, We hung out day and night constantly because I had obviously by now known him from The Godfather. So I took him to all the places. I snuck him into absolutely... I did my homework when it came to that, and that's what Billy wanted, and so that's what I did. Out in the street... You had all of the gay people, if you will, that were out there protesting the picture, protesting the picture. And what was never really shown was there was just as many, if not more, in the picture and out of the picture saying, go for it, do it. Yeah, make the movie. Absolutely, there was just as many. We showed the movie, and since then, the movie has gotten what they call legs, and about two years ago, I think three years ago, there was a release of the uh, DVD, and there was actually a premiere held in New York City and in Los Angeles, and I went to it, and it was packed. The movie was packed. I don't know about Los Angeles, Yes, cruising on the surface was very, very close to what happened. When you dug down really deep into it, no, if you want to say that Al Pacino portrayed me, which he did, no, I was not chasing one killer, I was chasing two. You know, it's semantics, if you will, Bill.
1: Also, in doing research, I've read where you arrested comedian Lenny Bruce. And I, <laughs> is this true? And what, oh, God.
2: Oh. Uh, so uh, while, I'm, while I'm actually in the real world chasing the killers, which would eventually, you know, turn into the, the movie Cruising, while I was chasing those killers, and um, it would take a full two days for the police department to get to me. You know, to come and to try and find me. In no way could I ever reveal that I was a police officer. I was deeper in that world than I was in narcotics. And so I finally got a message to go to the district attorney's office. And it was 2 o'clock in the morning. And I I found that strange. 2 o'clock in the morning to go to the district attorney's office. Well, I was out in the street working with my garb, if you will my leather jacket, my hat, and so forth. So at 2 o'clock in the morning, I went over to the district attorney's office, and honestly, they wouldn't let me in. And, of course, I had no identification to show that I was a police officer. They would not let me in. But they were able to call upstairs to the district attorney's office, and they came down and they got me. And I don't think that they believed what they were looking at. So we went upstairs and they said, look, the community of Greenwich Village, which is a very powerful community, uh, they are protesting, it's called a lewd and indecent act that's being performed at the Argogo. Now, once I say lewd and indecent, immediately we all think of strippers or uh, porn or whatever, but no, this was comedians who had crossed the line in language and every single thing else, as far as the Greenwich Village community was concerned. And this was taking place at the Argogo. And so, what the district attorney's office wanted me to do was to obviously, you know, not show up the way that I was dressed but to go up to the Argogo and to wear a wire. Well, most police officers, if not all, we bulk at wearing a wire. I did not become a police officer to chase bad cops or... No, I, that's, not, that's not what I became a police officer to do. That was their problem, not my problem. And I didn't want to wear the wire. And they reassured me that this is what it was for, so forth and so on. And I said, all right, so I wore the wire, and I went up there. And what I'm going to tell you is the truth. Now, I went up there, and there was an act on before Lenny Bruce, who I never even heard of at this time. And the, uh, the, it was Professor Irwin Corey. And he was performing in a diaper in, in in a crib. And he was spitting and saying words and so forth and so on. Now, if that was the lewd part of what was going on there that night, well, then that was it. And I waited, and then came Lenny Bruce. And, of course, he came out and all the language and everything, and I had had the wire on. And, of course, the people were talking over it, and they were talking back to him and so forth and so on. Well, I finished, and I went back to the district attorney's office, and I turned in the wire and immediately went back what I considered much more important police work, to catch killers. And once again, about a week later, I get called to go to the district attorney's office, and I go back to the district attorney's office, and they said, look, the woman cannot transcribe the wire. There's too much gobble. There's too much talk on it. There's too much of this. Can you please go back there and do it again? I said, okay. Okay. So I went back there, but this time, Bill, what I saw was a real to real big console that was taping Lenny Bruce. So I left, I went back to the district attorney's office, and I said to them, It's being taped. The show is being taped. They give me what's called a Ducas Tacum subpoena or summons. I go back up there, and, Bill, I confiscate the tapes. I bring it back down to the district attorney's office. Please keep in mind while this is going on, homosexuals are being killed. I'm looking for killers, and this is what I'm doing. I bring them. I get a call back, and the call back is they don't have the equipment to play these tapes and now we're going to go up and seize the console. I go this time, but they sent emergency service and they unhinge the console and we're going to take the console down so that they can play the tapes. In the meantime, they have established that the man, the husband and wife that own this place, they are keeping and maintaining a lewd and indecent act and they are allowing and permitting Lenny Bruce to perform like this, they are given summonses for allowing and permitting and given summonses for keeping and maintaining. Those summonses would uh, f- finally jump up and bite them in the ass in that they took away their state liquor license. They lost, they lost their license. The, uh, the, the console was brought down by truck to the district attorney's office. They played the tapes. And the next time I had to go was I went to court with Lenny Bruce. And, of course, I I was the arresting officer. I went to uh, court with uh, uh, Lenny Bruce, and the judge didn't like the way Lenny Bruce was dressed and the way that he was carrying on in the courtroom and told him, gave him another day to come back and to dress differently, and he cannot carry on in the courtroom like that. We came back to the courtroom. This is months. We came back to the courtroom, and Lenny Bruce asked for time to go and get a lawyer, which the court allowed him to do. And before we were to come back again, Lenny Bruce died of an overdose. So yes, I locked up Lenny Bruce under those those conditions. And the complainant, which is very important, was not the police department. It was the citizens' Uh, of the community of Greenwich Village.
1: Final question. Uh, You told me on the phone you were stationed in Fort Campbell to Kentucky and you used to come to Nashville on the weekend. Uh, What was there to do in Nashville? (laughs) Well,
2: (laughs) what I did in Nashville, you know, being 17 years of age, it doesn't belong in this phone conversation. (laughs) I don't know if you heard of Hopkins, Hoptown Hop or Hopkinsville?
1: Hopkinsville, yes, sir.
2: Yeah, I was 17 years of age, and my buddies dragged me off, and I got my wings tattooed, airborne wings tattooed. But uh, Nashville, oh, yeah, I enjoyed my time in Nashville. I really did. And, you know, and as Nashville grew and grew and grew over the years and the music and stuff like that, you know, I would tell my family, yep, I was in Nashville. I went to Nashville.
0: I would like to thank Randy Jurgensen for granting us an interview. Remember, come to the Nashville Public Library on Saturday, March 8, 2014, at 2 p.m. on 615 Church Street to see Report to the Commissioner. Remember, it's free. Today's music is from The French Connection by Don Ellis.